Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. We here at Faith Baptist Church, we believe our mission is to be disciples making disciples. To be people who are following after Jesus, encouraging others to follow after Jesus. And we believe that our vision is to share the journey, to share that message. And we do that through truth, community, and engagement. We've been singing about the truth. We're going to dig into the truth here. It's all about the truth of the Word of God. And it's all about community. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not a group of professionals. We're not putting on a show. Praise God, this isn't a production. This is real life. This is a family. We engage with each other in our messes, don't we? We come in here carrying our struggles, and we encourage one another. We worship together. We look at God's word, and we admonish one another in God's truth. Truth, community, and engagement. I pray that you will engage in the mission of this church, in the mission that Jesus gave us to go to the ends of the world and preach the gospel to those who need the life-saving hope of Jesus. Amen? Can I just be honest with you? I've, I don't know how many times I've gotten to preach so far. This has been the hardest one. Can I tell you that? (laughs) And you laugh, but I've put more work into this message than any message at this point, and I feel less confident about this message than any message to this point. Does life go like that sometimes? I can't tell you. (laughs) how many hours I spent trying to figure out this story in history and trying to line up these historical events so that I could show you God's heart being redemption for his people. And I struggled. Is it okay to be honest at Faith Baptist Church this morning? I'm having a hard time with this and I need you to support me in this because this is a struggle. We're going to dig through a lot of content. And I am really worried that we're just going to dig through the history of the Old Testament. We'll learn some names, we'll hear about some things that people did, but I'm really worried it's going to miss that key point where it clicks for people. I'm really concerned that whatever illustration, whatever explanation I use is going to come up short. So I need to rely on God's strength this morning. Amen? Okay, I'm glad I can be honest in that, but does that ever feel like the way it goes? You know, maybe you've asked this question, this is going to be the theme of our message, can one person change the world? Is what I get to do here on a Sunday morning actually going to make a difference, or is it just going to be a bunch of historical facts and we're going to miss that key part where it clicks and God isn't going to do the work in people's hearts that we so want him to do. Can one person change the world? In the mundane daily routine, do you ever think, what am I accomplishing? Is this really changing the world? Changing diapers. Is this really going to change the world? Sitting at the same office job, crunching the same numbers day in, day out. What am I accomplishing? Is this really going to change anything? 
going out to the woods, cutting lumber, the same firewood. I've been doing it 18 years in a row. I just burn up all the wood. I got to go cut more. It just seems like this endless routine. Am I really accomplishing anything? Has anybody felt like that this week? Are we getting to anybody's heart here this morning? Here's where I see it the most. Right here. We're, we're in this stage in life where the dishes are always dirty. And <laughs> praise God for a wife who does so good at this because I do so terribly. I jump in once in a while here, but I don't want to toot my own horn. Do you know what happens after you clean the dishes? Somebody tell me, what happens to the dishes? They get dirty again. Have you noticed that? We're in this stage of life with our kids where the food gets everywhere. We've never used a vacuum cleaner so much in our entire lives as in the last four years because the food doesn't always end up on the plate or the face or the bib or the high chair. It gets on the floor and sometimes it gets on the walls and we've had it on the ceiling before, believe it or not. And it just feels like you're just going back and you're cleaning the same dishes. And it just feels mundane, doesn't it? I know this is really basic and you guys know. And there are some of you who are thinking, Pastor Josh, I've got five kids. You don't know mess. <laughs> and I'll admit, I don't know the mess. But you know, there's purpose in all of these things that God tells us to do in our daily mundane routine, isn't there? And oftentimes it's the devil's little lie and his voice and his whisper that creeps in. It's not always a whisper, it's often a shout because he's got to grab our attention and tells us that the things that we do are insignificant. They don't mean a hill of beans in light of eternity. What difference is what I'm doing going to make in the world? Can one person change the world? That's the question I want to ask this morning. We're going to fly right along. So we're going to look at three kings this morning. We ended last week talking about the prophet Isaiah. And in those 66 chapters, we looked at chapter 52, 53. The prophet Isaiah ministered during the reign of four kings, Hezekiah being the last king. You can read his story in the book of Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. We're going to read his story in 2 Chronicles beginning in chapter 29, if you want to turn there. His story is also recurring recorded in 2 Kings. So all these books contain a lot of the same historical content. We're going to jump from 2 Kings, which is where we've been, to 2 Chronicles because it's the same point in the story. You heard it mentioned this morning, maybe you remember from last week, we're approximately 700 years before Jesus walked the face of the earth with his disciples. 700 years. You may also realize that at this point in the story, we're 700 years from the point in which Israel was brought out of Egypt, okay? So we're right smack dab in the middle between Egypt and Jesus, right in the middle of the story, 700 years between both. We're going to talk about three kings this morning. The first king was good, and then he ended really bad. The second king started really bad, but he ended pretty good. And the third king was just good. A good guy, solid character, he led the nation of Judah well. Remember, the nation of Israel is split into the divided kingdom. You have the northern kingdom referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Israel's on the border of Assyria. Most of them have been ransacked and taken captive to Assyria, and now we're left with what remains of Judah. 
And we start reading about Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Hezekiah is 25 years old when he became king of Judah. Is anybody here 25? Any hands? Okay. Hey. I should have known. No comment. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Good start. You know what? Hezekiah... In the first month, the first week, the first matter of days, he brings all of the priests, the leaders of Israel, of Judah, together. And he consecrates them. And then he tells them to go into the temple and to clean the temple. He literally says, if you read it in the Bible, clean the temple of all of its filth. Isn't that a good word? Filth. You see, the kings of Judah, the generations, had let the filth build up in the temple. It was left to ruin. And Hezekiah tells them to go in, clean out the filth. You know, it took them eight days to clean out the temple. The temple wasn't a massive building. And there were probably a number of priests. It took them over a week to clean the temple. Incredible. It must have been really dirty. He gets up early the next day. He gathers with all the officials and he says, It's in my heart to make a covenant before the Lord. That's a vow, a promise, a covenant to his relationship with God. So they have animal sacrifice, which is a picture of Jesus sacrificing himself for us. His blood cleanses us from all sin. And they host this massive worship service. There's not enough priests to do all of the sacrifices. So they have to consecrate some more Levites to join in on the team so that they can have this huge worship service. That's the first month. Second month, King Hezekiah decides to host a Passover celebration. The Passover was the feast that the Jews celebrated before God brought them out of the land of Egypt. You remember they were to take the lamb, they were to take the blood, they were to put it on the doorpost, and the death angel would pass over their house. Death would pass over because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. It's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? We just observe communion. His blood that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us to bring us new life. Not just to save us from death, but to bring us abundant new life. So they host this massive Passover celebration. Hezekiah wants everybody there. So in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 6, he sends out couriers all over the land. And here's what they say. O people of Israel, return to the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Look at verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. How annoying would it be if I read every verse like that? <laughs> why, don't, why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them what the key word of this passage is? <laughs> Jesus. Almost. We'll get there. We'll get there. It's turn, isn't it? To turn. Turning is a picture of repentance. Turning is when we turn from sin 
and we turn to God. Turning is when we turn from the evil that's in our lives. We wipe the plate clean. We set it aside to God. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we turn to, that's the process of sanctification. Are you catching this? Repentance is turning away from sin, denying sin, pulling a 180 degrees, walking in the opposite direction in sanctification towards God through Jesus. In that one act, which we call salvation, repentance, calling out to the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Repentance is turning from sin, pursuing God. In that one act, you are saved forever through the blood of Jesus Christ. But practically, day by day, we are being perfected and we are being sanctified in our relationship with God, in our fellowship with him, in our walk of holiness here as we dwell on the earth. Does that make sense? Am I losing you? If you say to a child, stop yelling, but you don't introduce a new activity, the child's probably going to go back to yelling, aren't they? Haven't you seen that? You tell a child no, and it's just an invitation to do it more. If you take a substance away from an addict, but you don't introduce a new thing for them to pour their passion into, oftentimes they go back to that substance, don't they? Repentance is turning from sin and evil, turning to God, and then pursuing a life that more likely resembles Jesus through sanctification. That's a lot, a lot of big words. We'll look at them again. Repentance is turning from wrong to right, from evil to good, turning away from the things that God is against and turning towards God. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart. Can one person change the world? The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do according to what the kings and the princes commanded by the word of God. Look at verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Can one person change the world? You know, after the Passover, I just picture it's like at the end of Thanksgiving dinner, and they've got all this stuff to clean up, right? So they go into the land, they get all of the idols, they tear them down. They get all the high places, they tear them down. They take out all the institutions and the programs for idol worship, they tear them down, they destroy them. You know, Hezekiah even took the bronze snake that Moses made and put on a pole. You remember when they were in the wilderness? If the people got bitten by the snake, they could look to the pole and it was a picture of their repentance from evil, turning towards God, and God would save them from the poisonous of the snake. You remember that? Hezekiah took that bronze snake, which the people had begun to worship, and smashed it on the ground. If I was there, I would probably want to hold on to that snake, wouldn't you? I mean, Moses made that. Moses' fingerprints are on it. But they begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. You've heard that verse in the Bible? So he smashes it on the ground. Just an awesome picture. Second Chronicles 31, verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all of Judah. And he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord is God. Verse 21. 
and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God. Does that sound like sanctification? Pursuing God, becoming more like Jesus. He did with all his heart and he prospered. I love stories like this in the Bible. People serve God and it goes well for them, right? They turn away from their evil, they pursue God and things get better. Things just get good, right? And it would be great if we could constantly preach a message like that. Like if you trusted in God, if you let Jesus pay for your sins, not only is he going to secure for you a place in eternity and give you abundant life, he's going to make this life, oh, it's going to be great. You're going to prosper in everything you set your mind to because God is for you, not against you. Isn't that what the Bible says? Everything you do is just going to be good. It's going to be smooth sailing. This life is just going to be, oh, it's going to be a dream. I would love to preach messages like that. But as, as we read on the story, we're going to find out that that's, that's not always the case. Second Chronicles 32. Wouldn't it be great if after you cleaned the dishes, they stayed clean? Wouldn't that be great? Chapter 32, verse 1. After these things and all of these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and camped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them to himself. Doesn't it always seem like as soon as you get things cleaned up, that's when the diaper gets filled again and you got to change it all over again, right? You just get that new outfit on, ah, and that's when you get the mustard on your shirt. Doesn't it always seem like when you get things straightened out, when you make a covenant before God, when you try and get your life straight, that's when the devil steps in with his schemes. Isn't that right? And here's what happens in the story. This is the turning point in Hezekiah's attitude, as you will see. So Hezekiah, along with the prophet Isaiah, who we talked about last week, they pray. You can read about this in Isaiah 38 and 39. They pursue God in their problem. And there's lots to the story. I encourage you to read it. Read along as we're going through the Bible in three years, because I can't give you all of this on a Sunday. Pastor Steve, Pastor Alex, Pastor Doug, we can't give you all of this on a Sunday. So read along as we're going through it. It's an incredible story. The Assyrians flee back to Assyria. God fights for the people. Long story short, God wins the day. And the people don't have to lift a finger. They just have to lift a prayer, and God saves the day. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 23. Israel's ecstatic. Many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem. And get this part, precious things to Hezekiah of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. Is the goal of this church to exalt man? We talked about last week how our entire mission in life is to exalt the name of God, right? Jesus Christ, that his name would be glorified, to share the journey, be disciples making disciples. Our purpose is to lift his name, not lift our own. But Hezekiah was exalted before the eyes of all the people. And that's the turning point for Hezekiah's attitude. And it's, it's just a downward spiral. He loses sight of his mission that was once so clear. The smell of that leftover food sitting on the counter and, and the sight of those dishes that were in the sink needing to be clean. He turned his eyes uh, 
off of his mission for religious and political reform, and he started focusing on his own treasure, his own accomplishments, and his own collection. It turns out he gets sick. And I believe this is God in his mercy and grace calling Hezekiah out of his pride and selfishness because God is so for us that sometimes he has to step against us to draw us back to himself. And Hezekiah, he, he sticks to his pride. He humbles himself in the moment. God saves him from death and sickness, but then he goes back to his pride. God heals him, but Hezekiah continues in his pride. God, God cleans up the situation for him and whatever the boils and welts on his skin or whatever his sickness and struggle was, God cleans it all up for him, heals him of his illness. But then Hezekiah goes right back to his pride and the dishes get dirty and stacked up again. And here's how bad it becomes. Second Chronicles 32, 27. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stone, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses, yields of grain, wine, oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle, sheepfolds. He likewise provides cities for himself, if the rest wasn't enough, flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him every kind of great possession. Doesn't that sound like King Solomon? who rose up in his pride and his accomplishments and it turned out to be his downfall. All of that wealth went right to his head. You know, it's very rare that somebody can get a taste of power and not let it go to their head. That's what happened to King Hezekiah. The prophet Isaiah, he's watching all this unfold. These messengers from Babylon, they come down. It's called a, a Babylonian envoy, a delegation from Babylon. They come down to Judah they speak with King Hezekiah, and Hezekiah says, oh man, I have got something to show you. Here, come with me. And he opens up all the doors of all of his treasuries and his armories and invites the Babylonians to take a look at all of his accomplishments. And if you come over here to the king's armory, you'll see all of these accomplishments. And if you come to the temple, I've stored up all these treasures. He shows the Babylonians everything. And the prophet Isaiah is ticked. He comes after Hezekiah, and he says, you crazy, foolish man. You showed them everything. Now your sons, after your death, are going to be taken away and serve as slaves to the king of Babylon. And get this. Here's what King Hezekiah says. As long as it doesn't affect me, As long as it doesn't bother me, if it happens after I die, that's fine. That's his response, his own sons. How callous do you have to be to miss the mess of all those pride-filled dishes sitting on the counter? Somebody else can take care of my mess. Somebody else can clean that up. I'm just going to enjoy my life for right now. You know, we can get callous to sin. 
You know, in that process of repentance, turning from evil and turning towards God and in sanctification, growing more and more like Christ, we can become really callous, can't we? And when we get into the daily routine and we start thinking this is mundane, this is insignificant, we start cutting corners, compromising, and pretty soon that decision that we made to turn from sin and to turn to God gets really marred in the light of our daily routine. In that decision to repent from sin, to turn to God, and to grow more like Jesus Christ, we are positionally children of God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Positionally, we are sanctified. When the Father looks at us, like we talked about last week, he sees the righteousness of his Son. Positionally, we are sanctified. Positionally, we are holy. Positionally, we are in Christ We are a child of God. But practically speaking, as we walk on this earth, this sin-stained earth, we are going to get entangled in sin. We are going to mess up. That process of repentance from sin and then sanctification and growing more and more like Jesus, positionally, we can put a fork in that. It's called grieving the Holy Spirit. And we turn a blind eye to how we're growing in Jesus Christ and growing to be more like Jesus Christ. And the dishes stack up on the counter. He lost sight of his mission. He definitely didn't change the world. But did he change the people of Judah? We're going to find out. Let's look at the second king moving right along because we're running out of time. Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old, 12 years old. Isn't that incredible? When he took over his king from his dad, Hezekiah, and he was terrible. He was the worst king. Uh, The Bible says that he was like King Ahab. You remember Ahab and Jezebel, who Elijah stood up and confronted? He was the worst. He was terrible. He set up all of the idol worship, all of the false gods, all of the high places, all of the altars that Hezekiah worked so hard to clean and get rid of. The dirt was just stacked back on the plate. It got so bad that Manasseh killed his own sons on the altar to false gods. He sacrificed his own sons. He went to fortune tellers. He went to sorcerers. He sold himself out to false gods. But look at God's heart here. Oh, we skipped a little bit. I want to I paint a little more of the story. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 16. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. How's that for a picture of evil? Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. The southern kingdom looked more and more evil and terrible than the nations that they had gone into the promised land to conquer. That's how bad things had become. Here's a picture of God's heart. Second Chronicles, verse 33, chapter 33 and verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. How many know that God is not just a cosmic clockmaker who spun the hands of time and is just sitting back watching it unfold? God is invested and active. He's in love with humanity and he's willing to do all that it takes to buy us back to himself. That's his heart. 
Look at him calling out to Manasseh and calling out to the people and they just turn a, a deaf ear. They pay no attention. So here's what God did. A righteous judge must punish sin properly and completely. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 13, God says this, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and then turning it upside down. Verse 15, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt. That's a long time. 700 years, I said. 700 years of putting up with the garbage from his people. In the promised land, he was calling out to them. He was leading them by the pillar of fire and the cloud. He was giving them food. He was giving them water. He sent them the prophets. He sent them the judges. He sent them good kings. And over and over, they just keep piling on the dirt and piling on the dirt. And it gets worse and worse. And it's a sad history in Israel. So here's what God does. Second Chronicles 33 and verse 11. Here's what he does to Manasseh. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains and bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, verse 12, he, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. This is Manasseh. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty. And he heard his plea and he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. You know, I kind of wondered at this point in history, could this have been the full-on captivity? But because Manasseh's repentance, it turned history a little bit. I don't know. Manasseh is taken into captivity. He cries out in his distress. God hears him and draws him out of captivity. And we serve a gracious and merciful God, don't we? That no matter how far and how deep we get ourselves and how dirty we get those plates, God is willing to bring us back and to redeem us, to buy us back. You know, there comes a point where God chooses no longer to look at the dirty dishes left on the counter and he just steps in like a good father and he washes the dishes himself. Manasseh goes off into captivity. He repents, he humbles himself. And when he gets back from captivity, he leads the change. He is all about cleaning up the land. And I'm gonna do this again because it just demonstrates our daily routine and the mundane things that we feel are so insignificant, but... Manasseh steps back into Jerusalem, into Judah, and he takes down everything that he set up that Hezekiah, his father, had taken down. Do you see how the dish just gets cleaned and gets dirtied and gets cleaned and gets dirtied? That's Israel's history. After God intervenes, he leads this radical revolution. Can one person really change the world? Manasseh's son, Amon, took the throne. And he was evil. He set up all the false gods and all the worship of the false gods. 
it says he incurred more and more guilt. And I just picture those plates stacking up on the counter. He just kept piling on the evil. He only lasted two years and then his servants murdered him. Now we're talking about the third king today. And this is like a bright ray of hope in the story. My hope had been, this is where the story would turn around and things would get better and we could end on a triumphant note. So we're going to talk about King Josiah, Amon's son, Josiah. Second Chronicles 34 and verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Eight years old. Are you too young to be used of God? Are you ever too young to be used of God? Eight years old. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he's 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. That sounds like sanctification. And in the twelfth year, when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. So here's what he did. He chops down trees. He chops down the altars. He breaks down the high places. He destroys all of the false idol worship. He cleans the land. It says that he pounded the idols to dust, to powder. And then he spread the ashes on the graves of the people who worshiped them. That is pretty legit cleansing right there. And he cleans it all up, all over again. You see this repetition, generation after generation. The same dirt, the same cleaning, the same dirt, the same cleaning. Can one person really change the world? Or are we stuck in this repetitive cycle? In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's 26 years old. He sends a group to repair the temple because it had just continued to be desolated. He finances the project. The carpenters are preparing the wood. The masons are preparing the stone. And Hilkiah, the high priest, in the temple, finds the book of the law that God had given through Moses. Potentially, it was an early copy of the book of Deuteronomy. And they find this book of the law, 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 21, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. You know what Josiah is asking? He's asking, is it too little, too late? Are we too far gone? Has the last 700 years of history of just piling on the dirt and cleaning it off, and piling on the dirt and cleaning it off, have we gone too far? Maybe that's how you feel this week. Maybe you're arriving here this morning, you're thinking, man, the mess of my week. And the choices that I've made. And how far down the rope I feel like I've slidden in my sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. Maybe you're, you're thinking of a lifetime of dirty dishes stacked on that counter. And how could I ever begin to clean up my act? What does that even look like? Josiah is wondering, is it too late? 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 24. They go to the prophetess Huldah. 
And Huldah was God's messenger for God's word in this time. And Huldah says in verse 24, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Verse 25, Because they have forsaken me, they made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Is that good news? God's going to wipe the plate clean. Judgment's coming for evil and wickedness of the nation over hundreds of years. But then God gives this special message to one individual in the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 26. As we come to a close today. Huldah says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, specifically, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Verse 28, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. God couldn't, as a righteous judge, continue to show mercy and grace to the nation of Israel. He had to judge sin. But to one individual, King Josiah, he showed that mercy and grace. And you know, I forgot how this story ended. So I read to this point and I thought, this is going to be great. God accepts a people's repentance, right? Josiah led the nation in repentance. He's going to turn things around. He's going to change the world for the nation of Judah. God's going to see this. This is God's promise. I'm going to collect you to your fathers. You're going to go to your grave in peace. That means he's going to I don't know what, not have the captivity in Babylon. It's just going to be wiped off the pages of scripture somehow. I'm trying to figure out how this is going to play out. You know what happens? Josiah gathers all the people. He doesn't give up on them, even though it's too late for all the people. And he reads the law in the hearing of the people. Then he has this massive Passover. And here's what it says about the Passover, just like Hezekiah had. 2 Chronicles 35 verse 18. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel, the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah, the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Josiah doesn't give up on his people. Like a good leader never gives up on his people. Josiah tries to change the outcome for the people. And here's how the story ends. I literally read this in a coffee shop in Truro and I said to myself, what? That's how the story ends? I wrote it in my notes. How does the story end like this? 
Pharaoh Necho comes by from Egypt and he's on his way to Assyria because he's going to fight the Assyrians. Josiah goes out to meet them and they send messengers and they talk and Pharaoh basically says, I'm going to fight Assyria. God has laid this on my heart. My issue is not with you, so just let me pass. Josiah says, no. He stands up, fights against Pharaoh. He gets shot with an arrow. He dies in his chariot. He's brought back to Judah. Everybody mourns. His two sons are taken into captivity, one in Egypt, one in Babylon. They both die there. Jerusalem is taken. Judah is taken. Jerusalem is burned, and the people go into exile. And I'm left thinking, what do I have to say on Sunday? Where's the hope? Where's God's heart for his people? Shouldn't, shouldn't God swoop in at the last minute? Wasn't Josiah good enough? Why didn't the tides of history change? Why didn't all that evil that it built up over 700 years, why wasn't it just wiped clean? Why is this how the story ends? But we know that's not how the story ends, right? We know that this is just a picture of the fact that what Josiah couldn't do, Jesus did, didn't he? You can have a great king, but we need the king of kings, don't we? Josiah could lead all of the repentance and all the religious reform that he wanted. He could take all the institutions, all the programs out of the land, but at the heart of every human being, we come into this world evil, don't we? And whether you wipe the plate clean or not, the plate of our hearts is what really needs to be wiped clean. What Josiah couldn't do, Jesus did. Can one person change the world? Amen. You know, I, I was told for years, and I was thinking about this as I was studying out this passage and thinking, how does this fit together? This is just going to be a lot of names. This is just going to be a lot of history. I'm going to get a lot of glazed looks as I'm getting this morning because this is a lot of content. How is this going to change the world? And the fact is, it's not our responsibility to change the world, is it? And you can be told from a young age, like I was told, I think I said this quote, it was on my sixth grade classroom wall with Miss Vincent, and it had a picture of the moon and the stars, and it said, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. You can change the world. You can be anybody you want to be. And I feel like that's the devil's lie. Jesus can change the world. And I hate to burst your bubble, but you're not going to change the world. Maybe, maybe life hasn't been that hard on you yet, and you still have some hopes and dreams thinking, you know, I can turn Canada around. <laughs> or maybe you've come to the realization that, you know what? I'm probably not going to change the world. But I, what can I change? You think of the stack of dishes that this world has heaped up over the course of history. And in God's kitchen, under his nose, all of these dirty plates. And God must judge sin. You know, I, I can't clean all those plates. 
but I can let Jesus clean my plate. You know, Jesus said, go into Jerusalem, then all Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. If we were designed to change the world, he would have said, just change the world. But instead, he said, start at home. Start with yourself. Discipleship starts right here. Repentance starts right here. Sanctification starts right here. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah, they tried to lead change for the entire nation. And they failed. There were some good things happened. There were some times that were good, but at the end of the day, the dirt on the plate just kept piling up and they just had to keep cleaning the same high places, the same altars, the same idols over and over again. Instead of changing the world, why don't we just focus on a smart goal? Let's, let's clean our plate. Let's let Jesus clean our plate. And if God has blessed you with a marriage, you're in a dating relationship, you have the opportunity to encourage your spouse in that regard as well, in their sanctification, in their repentance and sanctification. If God has blessed you with kids or you're able to work with kids on a regular basis, then God's inviting you to encourage them. And then if we spread the circle even farther, you think about your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. You think about your church family. We're gathered together to admonish and encourage one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to spur one another on for the sake of the gospel. We, we can't change the world, but we can change a piece of the world around us, can't we? You see, we're, we're designed as a body, and that's the body of Christ. Jesus is the one who has changed the world. And this is not just history that we're talking about this morning. It's his story. And we are his body as the church. We are his hands and feet. And each of us fits together to do our little part in the kingdom of God. And in each of our little spheres and our little worlds that we live in, God can make the difference. So can one person change the world? Only Jesus can change the world and he has. We just need to focus on our plate our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, our church family, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. We can't change the world, but Jesus can. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. God, even in difficult parts of your word, we get to see the full story because it's been lived out, it's been recorded. You've written it on our hearts, Father. We get to see the end of the story that where Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah failed in making real change for the long term, that Jesus, you succeeded. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the spotless lamb who was slain not only to cover our sin, but to cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness. God, thank you so much that the Bible says, those who call out on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you so much that we can turn from sin, 
We can have a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and enables us to be sanctified and to pursue a life that resembles what Jesus was all about. But God, for those days that we let the world creep in and we listen to the schemes of the devil, God, help us to turn from those things and help us to continually turn to you and to pursue you on a daily basis. God, if there are people here this morning who have not made that personal decision for the first time, God, I pray that they would make that today. God, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you so much that where I fail, where I don't give the full picture, where I miss key parts, that God, you have promised that your word would not return void, and I cling to that promise today. God, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy, and your truth. God, help us to always be a family who's pursuing Jesus as we encourage others to pursue Jesus. Help us to never let the dishes stack up on the counter, but that we would keep a consistent check with you. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us and for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins in our place and to give us his righteousness and the abundant life that only he offers. Thank you that he changed the story. We just want to praise you this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.